This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now, your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I trust you're having a great day. Uh, We're going to get right into it because it's been another one of those busy, busy days. The provincial government today introduced mobile health clinics that will travel around the province and provide access to a family doctor or nurse practitioner to help fill, fill gaps in access to health care. I should be clear, uh, they haven't actually introduced these mobile health clinics. They're going to be launched a little later on in the year, but uh, and with more set for next year, I believe. But we're going to hear, hear more about that in a moment. Uh, here's Health Minister Tom Osborne from earlier today. The introduction of mobile clinics has the ability to reduce costs, increase efficiency, deliver high quality primary care in an innovative team-based model, shift the focus from a reactive model to a preventative care model of health and wellness, and offer a unique opportunity for recruitment and retention for individuals who may want to work on these mobile clinics, and strengthen community engagement and connections. We recognize that the mobile clinics will be new to most people here in this province, but we have put in place best experiences and best practice from other locations because they have been used elsewhere with success. We are hearing good feedback from people who've experienced these mobile clinics as a method of providing access to primary health care. This is about supply and demand. We know where the demand is, and this will help us meet those healthcare needs. Today's announcement is another innovative initiative by government to expand access to primary healthcare across Newfoundland and Labrador. Our mobile clinics are an addition to the plan to establish an additional 11 family care teams that was announced in this year's budget bringing the total to 19. The urgent care clinic that was announced in this year's budget, as well as virtual care expansion for primary health care services. The many recruitment and retention initiatives that we've made available for healthcare professionals as well. These are just some of the important actions that we're taking to improve healthcare. All of these initiatives combined together will provide a stronger, more stable healthcare system for years to come. And to keep up to date with the healthcare action progress, please visit healthcareaction.ca. So that's uh, Health Minister Tom Osborne from earlier today outlining this new initiative, a mobile, the concept of a mobile health clinic. But how will they work? It almost sounds like stay where you're to till it comes where you're at. Well, um, VOCM's Brian Callahan was at uh, this morning's or this afternoon's um, news conference and he joins me now. Hello, Brian. Till it comes to your two or whatever you want to put, however you want to put it, because it was kind of uh, Pat Parfrey, Dr. Parfrey, of course, one of the uh, overseers, administrators of the health court NL. He uh, he said that in in different words. Basically, you know, it's bringing care to the people, um, and and bringing people to care in many ways. Because once they're in the community, you know, you can 
these uh, these large ambulances, for lack of a better term. It's much more than that. There's a lot of uh, chain differences between an ambulance and, and these mobile clinics. But yeah, when you mentioned that, it just struck me that uh, very similar to what Dr. Parfi had said, only in a different way. So there you go. Um, so what exactly is a mobile health clinic? I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, like a bus or a, um, a Winnebago. What are we talking about here? Well, you know, we all got there and we found that out and we all just started joking with each other. A couple of people, well, one colleague who shall remain nameless just kept telling me he kept picturing Scooby-Doo and the, and the van. The, the mystery machine, <laughs> the big, the, the, the minivan. That's, he couldn't get that picture out of his mind. But it's it's larger, you know, it's bigger than a bread box. It's 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 a larger type van, you know. Um, it's it's bigger basically than an ambulance, and it'll have, uh, as uh, Tom Osborne at one point, the health minister mentioned, it's like a doctor's office on wheels. So you know, it has access. It can access uh, the the health systems and your charts and your records and all that sort of thing. But again, it's primarily for people who don't have family doctors, don't have access to a family doctor, don't have access to a nurse practitioner. Um, and it's based on the model in other provinces, Linda. So it's, you know, again, right, it's these jurisdictional scans that they do. But, the, you know, they're looking everywhere and anywhere for solutions, you know, in the short term, to, uh, fixes that can uh, get people care uh, as, as uh, efficiently and quickly as possible, you know, depending on the on the urgency. But um, this is for non-urgent and it's for, you know, primarily those uh, areas where, you know, they're just not serviced enough and people need that kind of care. And, you know, you can do it. They're still working out um, issues such as, you know, walk-in appointments and all that sort of thing. But, um, you know, we have all the comforts of home, basically. We asked a few funny, you know, I mean, you're wondering who's driving it. So they're looking for Basically, they're going to put out expressions of interest for staff who want to do this. So it'll come from existing staff, and which raises all kinds of questions. You know, they're stretched thin as it is. But they believe this kind of, as you heard John, Tom Osborne there say, this unique experience, you know, um, a change is as good as a rest sort of thing. Get outside the eight to four, not, uh, or, you know, um, uh, system and uh, and try something different and go into smaller communities that otherwise they probably wouldn't because they're hunkered down in their office in the city or somewhere else in a large uh, larger area, you know. So um, I don't know what else you want to know. There are $140,000 a piece, each van, um, roughly, and the tenders will go out soon. There will be two that will start in September, and they will – uh, in the fall, I shouldn't say September, but they're, they're shooting for the for the fall. Uh, New West Valley, Bay Verts. So they'll have a rotation between those communities in Central. And in, uh, there will also be one initially in the metro area, but can serve outside St. John's as well, but may also be connected to the health sciences. And again, they'll, they'll have a nurse practitioner, a nurse, a doctor, a clerical person, and probably a second uh, nurse practitioner or, you know, a dual driver slash, you know, like a paramedic, for example, at least someone with healthcare experience so they can make sure that all five or four, depending on uh, the staffing that day, uh, will cover off, you know, all the needs of the primary care mobile clinic. Uh, yeah, so I was thinking in, in terms of logistics, and the first thing that came to my mind was the MV Christmas seal. You know how you used yeah. to go around yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to all the Careful, outports yep. uh, and the yep. and do those chest X-rays and everything during uh, you know during those dark days when uh, TB was raging. Um, cottage but, hospitals and yeah, yeah, that and the like. You know, so is it going to be kind of mobile and and sort of doing ro- regular rotations, or is it going to be like, oh, we need somebody in Bonavista, stat, go. 
go, go, go. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, again, now, yeah. So, I mean, like, as I said, they'll have two, they're going to get two more, apparently. That's, you know, two for this fiscal year. Then they're looking at two more. Uh, again, they probably won't venture far outside because if they spend all their time driving to communities, they'll spend less time actually dealing with patients. So they're trying to locate them as, you know, reasonably close to where the statistics show that they need, that they have gaps, big gaps. And, uh, and again, you know, it'll have privacy, you know, the room that'll have a small steps inside and all that kind of thing. I'm, I'm trying to picture how big it'll be once they have one, because they're going to put out tenders for them. Once they have one, it'll be probably easier for us all to get a tangible feeling of what these things will look like. But the other trick is here too, it'll primarily serve outside regular hours, right? So it's uh, weekdays, it would be 4 to 8 p.m. And on the weekends, 8 to 4. So that's when these things will primarily operate. And again, because the staff on them might be looking for extra hours outside their 8 to 4. So they might work an 8 to 4 shift and then go on one of these for a few hours as well. So, and they'll have to do that in some way because they'll be taking from additional, from the current staff, However, as Tom Osborne pointed out again, you know, um, they have a, an influx of nurses coming in now from India very soon and uh, other staffing up. They say they've kind of stabilized the nursing. He said for a while it was hemorrhaging, but, uh, you know, the recent signing of the contract and now they're talking about it, it's, it used to be hemorrhaging. Now it's stable. So, you know, they're putting a bright picture on the staffing as far as stabilized, whether or not the nurses union and and, uh, and the NLMA and everyone else would say, yeah, that uh, this will work out, you know, I mean, it's going to be an expression of interest. It's it's based on other models in other provinces, and we'll see, I guess, over time whether it works out. But in theory, it seems like a good idea. You know, you're getting right to these, going right into those rural areas where there are gaps, uh, basically. And so will it be located in a particular area for an extended period? Uh, you know, uh, we're going to be in Buckins this week? Well, again, now Balkans is, yeah, so uh, again, the rotation, there's one, you know, they're not talking about Western and Labrador, of course, is on the radar as well. They plan to look at a unique type of um, a solution there as well on the same basis. But uh, right now, first of all, this is permanent. This isn't like a pilot thing. They're going to, you know, it's going to permanent. It's going to, obviously, they'll assess how it goes early days. But Tom Osborne said it's a, it's a permanent solution. They will continue to do it and add ones as they go. So, again, the first two will, first one will generally be in the central area. So, you know, they'll have schedules, they'll book appointments, and if it happens to be there on a day, you know, that you need it, you could probably do a walk-in. But they're working out those kind of issues. Again, it's supposed to ramp up in September, and the Department of Health has, uh, or Health Services and L has made it uh, clear that they'll, you know, update people as it gets closer, and they'll unveil these ads, and there'll be a splashy little, I'm sure they'll have a media event, you know, to show what it looks like and what it can do. And I assume then that this is not going to be uh, for emergency care. If you have broken your leg no, or you're having no. chest pain and, or symptoms of a stroke, and, you go to hospital. Yeah, and it's funny you say that. When, you know, you get so many questions and you don't want to drag around too long because there's lots of questions you can ask on the side. But that was floating through my head. But ultimately, you know what they're going to say. It's, it's going to be, you know, what about an emergency? Of course, if someone just slice their hand in some accident at their house and uh, the, the, they, the team happens to be there at the clinic, they're not going to turn that person away, right? They're going to treat them as quick as they can and get them somewhere, you know, stable. But, uh, you know, this is what it is. Again, it's for, you know, primarily if you don't have a family doctor and you don't have otherwise access to, say, at least a nurse practitioner, um, you know, it, it could be pretty hopeless for you. But they're just uh, trying to come up with these, you know, novel, unique solutions as they go. 
Um, Dr. Parfi was there to say, you know, he's he's content, he's satisfied with the progress he's seen from government, the efforts they're making. And these are all, like they said, the puzzle. They all, you know, will fit in with the plans and the, and the, and the um, sort of layering as they're going along of what they're doing with community care and family practice and all those sorts of things. And this is supposed to fit into the puzzle of all those gaps, you know, to try to bring it all full circle. You know, how long it is before stats show that they're having tangible improvements you know, it's not going to happen overnight like they've always said. But uh, in the short term, you know, they're pretty excited about us. And they believe the public will be, too, that these uh, units will be in, the t- you know, at least these two regions of the province uh, in the fall. And you mentioned staffing. Um, it's it's going to be staffed from existing staff. There's not going to be special staff hired on specifically for these roles? No, they're uh, firmly expecting to get some interest uh, from, you know, I, I asked, you know, what if you don't get staff? Will you mand- you know, will it be mandatory? But they're not even going there. They ex- fully expect that people will be looking. There are people within the system who are looking for a change, as good as the rest sort of thing, as I mentioned. But uh, no, 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 it'll definitely pull from existing staff. And because it's after hours and on weekends, they believe that there are people out there who will, and again, you know, we're not all talking dozens and hundreds of employees they need here. These vans are four to five, maybe, well, as many as you can fit in it and then still have room to be able to allow patience and privacy. But four to five people on average would be operating these units, these mobile units, and uh, it will definitely be existing staff, that's for sure, to at least start. Including clerical staff? Absolutely, yep. So will Wi-Fi be an issue? Well, uh, you know, I guess it depends on where they're parked. <laughs> maybe they can get like all of us in Newfoundland and Labrador. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, right. I mean, you know, Tim Hortons is a pretty good spot, so maybe they'll spend some time with coffee. I don't know. No, I mean, you know, their IT system should be, you know, they can have routers and that sort of thing. And I'm sure, being a government entity, that that sort of thing would be looked after. If they want quick access to your records or need quick access to your records, they need to get that pretty quick. And I doubt they'll be just relying on picking up the. And a Bella Line hotspot. <laughs> uh, Brian Callahan, really appreciate this. Thanks so much. No problem. Then anytime. Already. Bye-bye. Uh, your thoughts on that? Uh, you're welcome to give us a call. This is News Talk on VOCN. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. And we're back. Well, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, or NACI, is recommending that Canadians get another COVID-19 booster shot this fall. Its advice applies if it has been at least six months since your last dose or your last COVID-19 infection. The booster doses will be updated formulas designed to target more recent immune evasive variants. Chief Medical Officer of Health for Newfoundland and Labrador, Dr. Janice Fitzgerald joins me now. Hello, Dr. Janice Fitzgerald. Hi. So, uh, NACI now coming out with recommendations that uh, uh, people should get uh, a booster shot for COVID-19 come the fall. Is the province ready for it? Uh, Yeah, well, certainly, uh, you know, we're still in the planning process uh, for uh, our fall uh, booster campaign. And uh, uh, we're still waiting to find out the the products that will be available to us. We still don't know yet. The regulators are still working through that. So once... Uh, once we have that information, we'll be able to plan a little more definitively. And so, um, but uh, certainly we are 
Um, we are working through the processes uh, right now as to exactly how, how things are going to roll out. So what do we know about what the new booster might contain or, or how it will protect people? Yeah, so certainly um, the recommendation from the World Health Organization is that now, you know, any of the new uh, boosters should have an XBB variant um, antigen in them. And uh, certainly that's the expectation that we will see um, a vaccine with uh, that Omicron variant in it, um, which will be the latest variant. That's certainly what we're seeing circulating uh, in Canada at the moment. And what's the current COVID situation in Newfoundland and Labrador? Um, at the moment, you know, we're we're holding pretty steady. Our, our rates have been uh, fairly steady over the past um, few months, really. Um, there's been a, a slight uh, steady decline since since the winter, but uh, by and large, our hospitalizations are holding uh, fairly steady and uh, case counts uh, as well. And that's what they're seeing everywhere, really, across the country, so... So this XBB, I'm assuming, is, is uh, you know, less, if you will, um, what? <laughs> How does it differ from some of the previous uh, variants that we've seen? Yes. So as we've seen, I think, with most of the variants that we've seen as, they've, as the new ones have come out, they've been able to, uh, they're a little bit more transmissible. They've been able to evade the immune system a little bit better. Um, and so... Uh, uh, that's why this recommendation was made that, uh, you know, that any of the new uh, vaccines coming out now should uh, should have these XBB um, variant antigens in them. And um, so, you know, uh, what we do know is that, as with Omicron, we haven't seen any of the Omicron variants that are causing more severe disease, uh, but certainly uh, we've seen that they've been more transmissible. Uh, and, you know, we know that immunity does wane as time goes on, and so that's why it's really important for people to get that fall booster to, uh, to boost their immunity now. So who will be eligible for these uh, boosters? So, um, you know, it certainly looks as if everybody will be eligible for, uh, for a booster uh, for a six, uh, or sorry, five years plus. Um, and, um, and the, uh, but we just don't know the product, as I said, at the moment. And uh, certainly really important for anybody who is at high risk of severe disease uh, or more severe complications of uh, COVID should uh, consider uh, getting vaccinated. And, and anyone who's providing essential services, social and health services, should, uh, should get uh, boosted as well. And uh, they're recommending that for anybody, uh, provided it's been six months since their last vaccine or um, uh, since they've had an infection. Dr. Janice Fitzgerald, I appreciate this and uh, have an enjoyable summer. <laughs> Thank you. You too. Take care. And you know, it's been a long time since we spoke with Dr. Janice Fitzgerald. She was a mainstay. I actually find it comforting when I hear her voice. Right? <laughs> yeah, she is so, so just, you know, that that stable voice that you want to hear in, in terms of uh, what's going on with your health. And I, for one, will be getting that booster. Amen, sister. Not um, everybody feels that way, though, no, right? No, I know not not everyone feels that way, and to each his own. I, yeah. I, totally. I wouldn't ask anybody to do anything they don't want to do. But I know I got COVID back in March, and I don't want that <laughs> anymore. So I have not got COVID yet, knock on wood. So I don't know. I, you know, I only go by what people 
say about it. And I think I remember you feeling so miserable that, yeah, you would do anything to... And everybody's different. Uh, right, some people yeah. like, eh, you know, I had some sniffles, big deal. Yeah. You know, and I was just like, eh. You were just really <laughs> taken was, down. Whew, it, yeah. it shocked and surprised me. So must it, was it scary though? Um, you know, only not scary, but it was like, you know, when you get the flu and you're a bit whiny. Yeah. And you're, yeah. (laughs) Well, some more than others. I have a bell next to my bed when I have the cold. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, each day you feel a little bit, you can feel that little bit of improvement. Oh, well, that's good. Right. For four, three or four solid days, I felt no improvement and Mm -hmm. that's what made me pause right if you know what i mean it made me go hmm Hmm. this is a bit different it felt different you know how uh, throughout all of this everybody's been calling it flu-like symptoms yes but you're saying it's probably on buster steroids is it it's like the flu but not but it's not the flu okay you know uh, i knew you knew I the felt difference. very differently. And tired, though? Like, so everybody was so different. I didn't find that so much, mm-hmm. but I, I just, for days, I just couldn't get out of bed. It wasn't going to happen. Right. And then eventually it did happen, which was when, as soon as I got out of the bed, I started to improve. Mm-hmm. But up until that point, I could not. Yeah. So that's how it was different. I think when you had the flu, you're kind of like, eh, and you'll just force yourself, yeah. And then you get up and you watch a bit of TV, and then you go back to bed. But you can't even do but that. But in this case, I couldn't. It was just like that. Yeah, gone. Right. So yeah, I don't want to get that anymore. I guarantee <laughs> you. You'll be in the lineup too. Okay. <laughs> uh, rolling it up, rolling that sleeve up. Um, well, coming up after the news break with Noah Shepard, the Council of the Federation wrapped up its conversations in Winnipeg this week. What is the Council of the Federation? It is, uh, you know, uh, I guess a lofty term for the premiers of Canada all across Canada. Uh, they met in Winnipeg this week. We'll speak to the premier uh, coming up right after this. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. And we're back. Well, premiers from across the country met in Winnipeg this week for the Council of the Federation meetings. Among the topics discussed was inflation, the federal government's clean fuel tax, and the impact it will have on Atlantic Canadians. Premier Andrew Fury joins me now. Hello, Premier Fury. Hi, Linda. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us from Winnipeg. I know it's been busy t- days. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the uh, uh, the Council of the Federation. Uh, what was uh, some of the key uh, takeaways from your from your um, several days of meetings in Winnipeg? Yeah, sure. We we discussed a broad range of topics that uh, impact Canadians from coast to coast to coast. And they are the familiar topics to, to you and your listeners, of course, health care, energy, infrastructure, safe communities. Um, but I made sure that uh, our voice was also heard on uh, specifically in the energy front with respect to our oil and gas industry and the hardworking women and men who work in it, and equalization. And so we, we talked a, a lot about uh, different challenges. And what was encouraging, uh, if you will, was that 
the challenges are not unique to Newfoundland and Labrador uh, with respect to health care, for example. Every jurisdiction across the country is facing the same uh, challenges in the same areas, uh, whether it's long-term care, mental health and addictions, human resource recruitment and retention. And it was an opportunity to uh, both lead and listen uh, to discussions about best practices uh, within the uh, within the crisis that is uh, currently uh, on the healthcare system across the country. And so to be able to to see that it's happening across the country, that everybody is, is largely moving in, in the same direction. Um, I think uh, the Atlantic region, Newfoundland and Labrador, stood out as leaders uh, with respect to our credentialing. Um, and, we, of course, we brought that to the table uh, with the Atlantic premiers and created the Atlantic uh, Physician Registry, as example, and now others across the country are looking to join that, uh, that registry uh, in terms of mobility for physicians and credentialing. So it was a broad range of topics, uh, Linda, uh, safe communities, uh, ensuring that we have the appropriate uh, police force in place, the appropriate resource uh, to uh, ensure that communities are safe. As we all know, that uh, there's been incredible pressure on our police force and, and on our communities with respect to uh, uh, to increasing criminal activity across the country. And uh, we need to make sure that the uh, justice system, the policing system, is is evolving to meet the demands of, of the modern communities. So it was. Uh, it was a very interesting discussion, and again, uh, shared uh, shared uh, best practices, uh, learned experiences across all those uh, those broad topics, uh, as I suggested. The Bank of Canada has just raised interest rates and has got a lot of people talking about the cost of living and the like and uh, the carbon pricing program and clean fuel regulations, no doubt, have come up for discussion as well. What came out of that? They did indeed, and I made sure that uh, people uh, understood nationally why the Atlantic region is unique, uh, and it is unique in that it is a regulated environment with respect to uh, our, our petroleum our products and our gas, if you will. So uh, it was first important to establish that uh, so that the other premiers understood why we were in such a different position with respect to the Atlantic region. And uh, the carbon tax is one thing. Let's save the carbon tax. Uh, put that aside for uh, a moment because the federal government claims that they are giving that money back uh, to families across across the province. And, but let's, let's put that aside. That is a federal tax, by the way. The, the provincial government repealed its portion of the tax. It's not a provincially levied tax. It is exclusively a federal government tax. But they are giving the money back. The clean fuels piece um, has a, a, a disproportionate impact uh, to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, to the people of Atlantic Canada. And when we asked the federal minister of environment why he was doing this, what the evidence was, he said that it would have a minimal impact, but he was unable to provide the evidence that, uh, to support that. And so we looked to the PBO, uh, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, an independent analysis that said it would have a 1% hit to Newfoundland and Labrador's GDP. I mean, do you know how hard we have to work to get 1% of our GDP? Um, and if you look at that, take that away from the economics, because most people don't understand, most people don't want to hear about the GDP or percentages. But if you look at it from an individual perspective, from an ultimate local perspective, if you have someone who's on a fixed income, an 80-year-old in carbon air who's on a fixed income, and she's got, he or she is going to be expected to pay three times as much 
as the same 80-year-old who lives in Trois Rivières or Winnipeg, Manitoba. And that is not fair. So this is not a question of whether we believe in climate change or not, or because we all do and we all want to do our part. I just think it's an incredible ask and unfair in a federation to expect that the people of Newfoundland and Labrador bear three times the burden. And I want to, this is not me picking a fight with the federal government. This is me standing up for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. And there has been an absence of reply from the federal minister of environment with respect to, to that particular uh, question. So it's not a question of climate change. It's a question of fairness. Some people may ask, is there anything Newfoundland and Labrador can do to help uh, alleviate some of those tax pressures, especially when it comes to fuel pricing? Um, what's your response to that? Of course. Uh, and uh, as you recall, we, uh, we cut our gas tax uh, quite significantly. I, th- I believe we have the second lowest, if not the lowest gas tax, provincially levied gas tax in the country. Uh, we did that as a temporary measure, recognizing the inflationary pressures that existed approximately a year ago, and we extended that. Minister Cody did a great job in ensuring that all of those uh, instruments uh, to help with the cost of living, whether it's the gas tax relief, uh, the cutting motor vehicle registration in half, uh, relief on a tax on uh, house insurance, all those items are, are still in place, uh, even though they were introduced uh, a year and a half or a year ago, uh, to be temporary. So we're very aware of the cost of living pressures that exist in Newfoundland and Labrador, which is also why we are screaming so loudly about this clean fuels impact, because it's not just individuals, it's it's impacted businesses, local businesses. And of course, they have to pass that cost along to the consumer, and all of this contributes to local inflationary pressures and Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are willing to do that, wanting, wanting to do their part with respect to climate change, but certainly not wanting to be penalized three times as much. And to be clear, the federal government has not given us a plan about how they're going to mitigate that, uh, to offset that. We've provided potential solutions to them because I'm not one who just complains. I'd like to provide solutions, but there's been no response uh, to date. Uh, it's, there are ways to offset their clean fuel uh, initiative uh, so that it's not punitive uh, to uh, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. And I am confident that Minister O'Regan and Minister Hutchings understand that and they're bringing that uh, voice uh, loudly to the federal table. So there you go, Premier Andrew Fury. Um, still, uh, you know, how can I put it? Uh, apparently, uh, still quite frustrated, I suppose. Uh, my words um, about the clean fuel tax and how it, uh, as he puts it, unfairly affects Atlantic Canadians, particularly people here in Newfoundland and Labrador. If you have any thoughts on that, you're welcome to give us a call. Uh, when we come back, um, a major water disruption in the city of St. John's yesterday affected thousands of residents but service was restored in relatively short order. We'll hear from Public Works lead on the St. John City Council, Sandy Hickman, when we come back right after this. This is News Talk on VOCM. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM.
A major water disruption in the city of St. John's yesterday affected thousands of residents, but service was restored in relatively short order. Public Works lead on St. John's City Council, Sandy Hickman, joins me now. So what happened? Yes, there was a a major uh, line that broke uh, coming from the Petty Harbour Lompong plant and it occurred in Barry Park actually and it was as I said a main line so it impacted hundreds and hundreds of properties in the extreme west end of St. John's and uh, we immediately uh, got calls to our 311 line which was tied up completely and uh, counselors were getting calls um, and of course we didn't know anything immediately but uh, that was around 9.30 10 o'clock yesterday morning um, within an hour or so they had a figured out that it was indeed the line, uh, the main, uh, that is, um, and had it located. They shut it off an hour and a half, two hours later, starting around one, and gradually they they took, uh, they took rerouted the, some water from the Babel's Big Pond into that system, and people were getting their water back, as I said, by 1 o'clock uh, to 2 o'clock yesterday, and we asked them to let it run a bit to clear out any sediment or anything, and people should have been back in good shape by 3 or 4 o'clock yesterday, so it was a disruption of uh, 4 to 5 hours uh, max, and uh, I must credit the staff for figuring it out so quickly and addressing it. So while this uh, diversion is underway, will residents notice any difference? I don't think so. We have uh, award-winning water supplies in all three uh, of our lakes, uh, nationally and internationally, uh, award-winning. That's not to say that they're exactly the same, but they're all great, clear, taste taste well. Um, they're all good water. Um, but I don't know if they would if they would also change or not. It's just good, clean Newfoundland water. So work is underway now to repair this. Um, any vague yeah. timelines on this, or it, it'll take what it it'll take what it takes. It, it, takes what it takes, but uh, they figure they'll have it uh, pretty soon, next day or two, and then they'll go back and do a switchover, you know, thereafter. Whether that's two or three days, I don't know. So how old is that infrastructure? Any idea? It's, I, as far as I know, it's not that old because Petty Harbor Log Pond was only put into service in the last eight to ten years. So I'm assuming that the underground infrastructure would be around the same age, uh, the water main itself, but I don't really know that fact. But water main breaks happen all the time, even in fairly new infrastructure, just because there's so much pressure at times coming through there. There's so much draw on that uh, that supply at certain times of the day versus other times of the day, and uh, I suppose that it can uh, just jostle things around. I'm no expert, I'm no engineer, (laughs) but these things are built well and uh, we don't get water main breaks uh, that often, but we do get minor breaks throughout the system. Uh, We we all know that, of course, parts of the city are are aging infrastructure. And uh, in other words, the lines built into your home and stuff, they were built, put in ground when your house was built. And uh, they sometimes see things uh, have problems over the years. But uh, otherwise, the mains in St. John's now are pretty new and are pretty well up to date. And uh, this is the first big water main break we've had in a, a little while, I must say. Any other major um, infrastructure updates uh, to be had? I know you mentioned a few in council. Yeah, the, one of the main things, of course, is uh, 
at the same time that we're doing uh, in uh, lining uh, the remains in the streets in the Churchill Park subdivision, we are now going to start construction and uh, uh, reconstruction of Elizabeth Avenue from uh, Westerland East to Allendale. And uh, that will be a, a big one because uh, as opposed to just scratch and patch, it's tearing up the whole surface and, and repaving it. At the same time, they'll uh, sort of upgrade curb and gutter, uh, look at a couple of intersections. There's some, a couple more crosswalks going to go in along uh, uh, Elizabeth Avenue. But the main thing we're going to add is a, a shared-use path for bicycles and other rolling vehicles, uh, uh, walkers, etc., and, and strollers. And uh, it'll be a shared path uh, adjacent to Elizabeth Avenue, and it's something that we're we have as part of our overall plan for shared use uh, uh, system throughout the city and uh, we're really happy that uh, we were able to take the money from uh, the normal upgrading project of Elizabeth Avenue and combine it with a little more money to make it a, a much better area. But I will note uh, that people should be aware that it's going to be a pretty tough traffic area over the next couple of years because this, this portion will be done this year. Next year will be Westland to Freshwater. And at the same time, of course, the track and field facilities under construction. And the Accurator will be starting a construction project fairly soon. And also three apartment buildings going up adjacent to the Accurator, which could be starting any day. That's a private project. So the area will have construction vehicles going around as well. So, uh, you know, short-term pain for long-term gain for sure. But uh, the road project will start almost immediately and go through November. So, yeah, be prepared for that. Um, and the Absolutely. bridge work on uh, Waterford, uh, over the Ro Waterford River there, base of Leslie Street to the south side. How's that going? That's going well. Uh, not sure how long that's going to take. Not really up to date on that one. I don't think it's disrupting traffic uh, that badly anyway, but it'll be done soon. Sandy Hickman, appreciate this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Linda. Anytime. And so there's uh, Sandy Hickman, Public Works lead on the St. John's City Council. Well, a town hall meeting is scheduled in Petty Harbor this evening to consider an amendment to the town plan to allow for the development of a microbrewery and restaurant in the old Roman Catholic Church in Petty Harbor. Local businessman Todd Chafe, who owns and operates Chafe's Landing, is behind the proposed business, and I spoke with him late yesterday. Well, the, myself and my wife, Angela, we put an offer in for the old Catholic Church in Pity Harbor and it was accepted and now we're going <clears throat> in the process now of uh, getting it rezoned hopefully if the uh, if the uh, townspeople and the council agrees with the proposal. So rezoning for what purpose? What are you planning? We're hoping to put a microbrewery and a, and a restaurant in the in the old in the old building. So that's on the opposite side from where you are now, is that correct? Yes, yeah, on the, on the north side of Pity Arbor. So expanding the tourism, I guess, potential in the town. Um, so what kind of a process do you have to go through now? Well, the rezoning is the biggest one, and then it's uh, got to go into the provincial government for their approval to rezone, and then it's, then it's just the regular applications then with the liquor board and provincial and federal. And I understand there's a public meeting on this in the municipality? Yes, on, on Wednesday the 12th. And will you be there to, to explain? To if there's any um, objections or concerns about the proposal. 
And will you be there to explain or answer questions or? Oh yes, well myself and my wife Angela and my daughter and uh, we got a brewery consultant hired to help us out. He's going to be there as well to answer the questions and uh, the volume of water and and noise. If the, well, there's no noise, but the, if there's any concerns over the noise or anything. Is there much work that needs to be done to convert that building? No, I really got to put in new washrooms and uh, put a new kitchen in down the basement. But the basement is nearly three quarters developed. <clears throat> and... Uh, put in the equipment and a few tables upstairs. That is not a big job, no. Is she in good shape? Yeah, it's pretty good, yeah. Well, we got to get the roof done. Well, I won't be doing that now, mind you, but the building is in, in pretty good shape for uh, since 1964. A few smaller things, like wind, uh, a few doors got to be fixed. and only small stuff. And what about things like, because, you know, these things come up everywhere, wherever there's a development. It's uh, parking comes up, and especially when you think about Petty Harbor and how tight it is. Uh, it, will that be an issue? <clears throat> Not to a certain degree, because there is a green, there was a, a bit of green space there, lawn there. We're going to end on taking half the lawn and turned into parking. It's 30 spaces there, counting to wheelchairs. So they're not too bad. For Petty Harbor, that's a lot. It is indeed. How are things so far this summer? Oh, it's pretty good. Pretty good. It's starting to bounce back a good bit since COVID. I guess the warm temperatures helped. Uh, what's this fog like for you? Well, it sells more soap and chowder when it's foggy. <laughs> but it sells a lot of ice cream when it's, when it's beautiful weather. But... There you go. So you have to have a lot of both on hand. Yes, yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, Todd, I do appreciate your time. Uh, anyone who wants to attend this meeting now, uh, when and where is it? It's uh, 7 o'clock on Wednesday night, the 12th, at the Pity Arbor Community Centre. So that is actually tonight, 7 p.m. at the Community Centre in Petty Harbour for anybody who has questions uh, or concerns about that uh, proposed development. Um, and um, Todd is a restaurateur, and he mentioned that you sell more chowder. I heard that. And soup when the weather is cold. I never thought about that, but... As soon as he said, I was like, mm, mm, I could use a, me a too. bowl of chowder right now. I'm so influenced by the weather that way. Yeah, that's when you want something for sure. We, uh, I, I mentioned this, that we went to, my sister and I went up to uh, Cape, Cape Spear, Spear. To, the, to the cafe there, you know, and they were all set up with their biscuits and their stuff and ice cream and Comfort all that sort food. of things. Yeah, and I was like, can I have a cup of tea, please? Because <laughs> it, uh, it was chilly that yeah. uh, particular day, yeah. Um, but there's nothing quite like a bowl of soup or stew on a cold day. Am I making you hungry? Yeah, you are. I mean, I actually just uh, on a commercial break, I texted my husband. I'm like, I really want supper right now. Thank you, Linda, for that. <laughs> <laughs> so what, uh, what is Bernie making? Oh, he isn't. I, are, I already have my meals, heat and eat. We don't eat together, but I just wanted oh. to complain to him. <laughs> 
Um, that sounds like a great marriage. <laughs> Over 20 plus years, that's that's it. Yeah. That's pretty good, yeah, for sure. Uh, sorry to get into those details I know. Uh, with the broader audience, but I think a lot of people know can what we're talking about, can relate to it. I mean, everybody's working different shifts and the like. And Yeah, you know, you, you hear so many people having supper at the same time or in the same room. I don't remember the last time we had a meal together or even at the table. It's always on a TV table. I wonder how many people actually use their kitchen tables. You know, this is funny. You made me think of something. Oh, but mom, okay. When we were growing up, all through our growing up and, you know, right through our adult, supper time was five, five o'clock. O- yes. Five o'clock, supper was on the table. And it didn't matter if nobody came home until six. Yeah, yeah. Five o'clock, it was on the table. I think it was five or 5.30 for my parents. And then, you know, when you go, go out on your own, you kind of develop whatever works for you. So I'm all over the place. It could be seven. It could be eight. It could be six. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, I know somebody who, uh, you know, it's like a big, big old meal, 10 o'clock at night. Now, I can't do that. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, whenever the mood strikes them, yeah. that's, that's when they're going to sit down and have a great big old meal. So. I wonder how many families are, are like that, you know, that just actually 5 o'clock, 5.30 still and stick to that time. I don't know. I don't know. Good question. Let's find it. <laughs> uh, people are welcome to get. let us know. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm we, sure. We always get a pile of emails after you and I chat, uh, have yep. these chats. Uh, well, here's my such and such, and here's what you were talking about here, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, we do welcome that kind of feedback. Thanks so much. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Enjoy your supper, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we'll, uh, we'll uh, talk to you tomorrow.